Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Where nothing if not a pair of heart muscles heaving old blood to new, grieving over and over and over again, and here, I thought leaving meant bluffing the count. This program features the work of 2018 writer Duji Tahat. Curator Damon Arundel sat down with him in the studio. Welcome, Duji. Thank you for having me. So glad to dig into this with you. Would you begin by describing your project? Yeah, um, so it's a manuscript. Right now it's chat book length. I think over time I'm hoping to build it out to be sort of a full book length. But it is concerned primarily with the question of grief, you know, like what grief looks like Mm -hmm. in what ways it manifests, like how we process it. In part because like the last year and a half for me has been filled with grief. (laughs) And I sort of had a realization that we're all sort of grieving in various ways about Mm -hmm. various things. Mm -hmm. And so what the manuscript itself is trying to do is sort of process individual grief, Mm -hmm. uh, which is for me separation and divorce from my wife and mother of my three children, Mm -hmm. sort of the implications on my children, which is sort of the first section. The middle section is like really concerned about fatherhood Mm -hmm. because obviously that has implications on my relationship with my kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And additionally, I have a estranged relationship with my father. Mm -hmm. um, And only recently did I learn that like sort of my way of silence, the silence between us Mm -hmm. is really a manifestation of grief. (laughs) And then how that personal, interpersonal grief can be mapped onto sort of political grief. Because, you know, along the way, I'm an immigrant who's been in deportation proceedings. You know, I've been, as someone who believes in the political process and government institutions and their potential for good, like I am constantly told that I'm an outsider. You know, I don't get to vote. Um, And obviously the last year and a half has been (laughs) really hard for uh, immigrants Mm -hmm. of color trying to stake claim to the American dream. Uh, so yeah, sort of in these like three from like the deeply interpersonal to sort of like the public external grief, mm-hmm. you know, um, that's sort of the through line. That's kind of like the thing of the project. Um, it starts with a poem that's like directly to my wife, mm-hmm. my ex-wife, and uh, it ends with a poem about um, police violence and mm-hmm. like trying to answer the question of how to grieve, like, mm-hmm. you know, how does grief compound it? self <laughs> and um, not only what is grief but then like how do you grieve uh, and how do you try to answer both those questions at the same time mm-hmm. like uh, you know it's a it's a really complicated mm-hmm. <laughs> complicated thing what would you say that writing about grief is teaching you that grief isn't something you get over I think that we often lump grief in with a bunch of other feelings. I think we think of it as, you know, joy or happiness or whatever. And we think of feelings, and maybe it's a problem with the way we conceive of feelings. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a problem with the, of lumping in grief with all other feelings. Mm-hmm. But this idea that it's ethereal, that you just have to process it and then move on, is, I think destructive (laughs) you know I think in the worst case scenario it's very destructive I think that um, in the best case scenario it's just you're doing injustice to yourself Um, because grief is a thing that you just put in your bag and carry with you grief presents in so many different ways you know I think like one of the things I tried playing with in this collection 
is humor. Like I wrote a couple of funny poems or what I think are funny poems, mm-hmm. as a way to grieve my dad specifically mm-hmm. because there is so much distance there because mm-hmm. um, there's been so much time and silence that I need to fill it with something, <laughs> you know? Right. And I think that that's counterintuitive too, to be funny about grief, to bring levity to it. Grief, I think, is just a thing that exists. Once something breaks, like you can never mend it, mm-hmm. right? So all you can do is sort of care for that fracture. And they're just, you know, as complex as we are as humans, there's a complexity of ways to tend to it. I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned from it and that you can't get over it and and that like I think gentleness is maybe a requisite to certainly writing about it because <laughs> you sort of need empathy for yourself and others. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, just gentleness for yourself because I think that teaches you how to be gentle with other people. <laughs> How is this work informing how you engage with your children? I think that I'm a better father today than I was a year ago. I think the relationship between turning and facing yourself, I think that's what teaches you empathy, right? I don't think that you need empathy to do that, mm-hmm. right? I think the core thing is being able to look at yourself. And again, like without romance, unvarnished, ungilded, mm-hmm. like ugly, sparse, <laughs> you know? Um, in all its faults. And I think when you can do that for yourself, you know, as sort of like working through this has been for me, Mm -hmm. um, you just get better, like mechanically speaking, at doing that for other people. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, I think that I'm just a better at reading other people and responding to them generally with relation to my children. I mean, a lot of what I've written obviously has to do with both their mother and the idea of fatherhood. Right. Um, and so there's, you know, that particular resonance where, like, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I think that I have a lot more intentionality. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's not that I have more intentionality about the type of relationship I have with my kids. I think it's sort of always been there, like the mm-hmm. type of relationship I want with them. I am more conscious about carrying that intention moment to moment. And I am more forgiving than of, you know, behavior or, or, or things that I think would otherwise normally trigger me, you know, because I'm more present and because I'm more intentional in my interaction with them. I mm-hmm. think that, you know, I've learned to let go <laughs> a little bit of uh, sort of moment by moment what my expectation is of that relationship, of their behavior, of my behavior. And as a result, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a much sort of much more longer-term view, I think, of our relationship. And that is, you know, it's a push and pull because that's also just freed me up too, right? Thinking about the outcome and being, like, really intentional mm-hmm. has freed me up in that moment-to-moment thing. Mm-hmm. And freeing you up from that moment-to-moment thing, mm-hmm. like, gives you the um, sort of enables you to elevate above that and sort of, like, mm-hmm. see into beyond just this momentary interaction, you know? Final question. What does your work celebrate? The ugly parts of myself. I mean, I think that's the that's the thing. <laughs> that's the thing with grief, and uh, you know, I I learned a lot about depression, a thing that I've lived with my entire adult life, but like didn't really know to name. You know, gentleness is helpful with that, and I think that you need to like not just acknowledge it, 
not just acknowledge mm-hmm. the ugly parts or the parts that you find unattractive or, or socially unacceptable. Any number of things, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, elevating them and holding them up, you know, giving it love, mm-hmm. being gentle with it, being kind to it, softening the edges mm-hmm. in your perception of it. That is really, really important because I don't think you can answer the question of how am I brave or like I am brave because I did this thing. I don't think that I can hold that up with as much light and strength as I want if I'm not giving myself equal treatment to my depression, right? Because I can't look at my bravery if I can't look at my sadness. Or certainly I can't see it fully. There's something that I'll be hiding from myself. Um, and I know that because I've done it. Mm-hmm. I've been doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I spent most of my adult life not recognizing this like thing you know, that has shaded a lot of my worldview right. um, that comes and goes. And I never really, you know, I was just a moody kid. Like I was just a moody person. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I thought that that could answer everything. But I think that it's important to celebrate the parts of yourself that you've given short shrift to, that you've overlooked that you feel are undeserving, that you feel don't belong. Because like I said, I think that's also really important. You know, like I said about the personal as political, like mm-hmm. that's a really, that's, that's the antidote to the personal and cultural crisis that you're either in or about to enter, right? Now we'll hear a selection from Duji's live reading. This first one is called And. It's just the ampersand uh, after Anne Sexton. Wife, tomorrow I'll be farther than ever before from your hands and feet. Wife, when I lay me down to sleep, I pray for us. Wife, I made a fuss over time and frivolous things. Really, wife, sometimes I really, really, really miss you. Wife, there's a TV show that I'm into, and the main character is you pretty much. Wife, it's amazing how little we touch. Now, compared to before, when it was all the time. Wife, I forgot to write you into the last line, but I swear that doesn't mean anything. Wife, there's an ampersand in everything about me and you and me and you and me. Thank you. So it begins. Divorce doesn't mean I don't love your mom anymore. I had to explain to my daughter again for what feels like I've lost count since her mother and I separated what must have been last year because she asked and wanted to know the answer and not just that she held the question and because I answered what I thought was honestly, the first time you fall in big love is a well and takes the longest to find the limit. You don't know what you don't know, like the sweet and sour of her mouth the morning after a surprise wedding. Fight. This is Sestina. Uh, A rhyming one at that. Did we know we had already started grieving when we began fighting over nothing? It was so early on. The facts were leaving taking with them all the loving and the lighting we'd been heaving onto our heavy silver shoulders, bluffing our way through the night. I wasn't bluffing just because I joked about our kids grieving the end of summer. I meant it. All that heaving got us so tired. You're not nearly loving enough when you asked what I lied. Nothing so often leaving seemed like the only next logical step. 
You saw me leaving and thought I was just bluffing. I probably was. It didn't mean nothing but chits the first few times. I was just grieving the score. I came back each time loving you more than before. Our apartment was heaving with warmth and elisions. I've been dry heaving since our backs started leaving each other every other day. The kids are loving Christmas now, but are caught up in all the bluffing and the posturing. Our oldest is grieving right here in between us, and there's nothing I can do when she asks for her mom. We're nothing if not a pair of heart muscles heaving old blood to new, grieving over and over and over again. And here, I thought leaving meant bluffing the count. I swear I'm a loving father. Don't make me swear I'm a loving father. You know how afraid I am of becoming a nothing and how good I've gotten at bluffing. Are we fighting again or heaving heavy marks? All my own keep leaving and a house that ain't a home is always grieving. Bluffing is just a kind of truth heaving. Loving you now means so much leaving. Nothing makes me feel more alive than grieving. Uh, that one I've read a few times. It hasn't gotten any easier. This next one is called When You Realize Your Child is Drowning in a Hotel Pool. You'll think for just a second that she's pretending. Head underwater, limbs and hair floating. Perfect imitation of a drowning child. It takes an extra second to scream her name, to jump in fully clothed, how heavy a drenched t-shirt can become. Everything happens a second too late. When you throw her onto the deck of the pool, don't be alarmed by the thud of the back of her head hitting the concrete or the limpness of her whole body. Small bouquets of violets bloom across her arms and legs, small pools of purple blood still just below the flesh. The water won't wash them away. Everything happens in seconds. Summon every memory of use. Pump water out of her tiny dimming body, blowing air into her water-filled lungs. You'll want to die a little. When you feel her small wet mouth inside of yours, everything happens in seconds. Eyes flutter taut. You become the type of desperation you never imagined for yourself. The types that runs through the lobby of an ordinary place, holding a motionless child, screaming, begging for help. Don't wait for an answer. Drop her onto the cheap Formica countertop. Keep blowing into her chest. You're breathing for two. Exhale into her so loudly the oak laminate begins to shudder. Pray the next second is yet some ways away. Pray. Pray miracle. Pray that she vomits. Closely watch her vomit. The bloom around her lips begins to spread. You'll wonder, is this good or bad? It doesn't matter. Now make her again vomit. Push the water out from her soft rib cage. A memory floods, secondary drowning. Fold her legs into your chest and hold her in your arms. Press hard like a memory you want to keep alive between the pages of an old book. Beat her back with more force than necessary. The hotel lobby will be covered in pool water. You'll apologize to the staff, I'm sorry. She's awake and vomiting, I'm so sorry. She's trying to sleep it off already. Keep her awake, I'm so sorry, baby. You remember some children drown twice and never wake up. Get her to the hospital now. At the hospital now, the seconds pick up speed. Scrubs whir by, wires and tubes suddenly sprout from her toes. Words fly everywhere, I'm sorry, you'll want to tell everyone. Sign some papers, thank you, I'm sorry. Only later that evening will you note your own fleshiness. Touch your own skin to feel the blood coursing beneath. Only with your long arms wrapped twice around her sleeping torso will you begin to let yourself unfold. She stirs. It's shocking how the body knows exactly when will be the right time to weep. 
later, hours into the night, when she wakes up crying for a glass of water. It's the first time I've read that one out loud. <laughs> so um, that sets up the second poem that's in the anthology, When Your Ex-Wife Calls You Negligent Because You Almost Drowned Your Baby. You look up childhood drownings and learn the number of dead infants in the water every year. What day of the week, what age and race are most likely, that even with all our contraptions, drowning is still one of the most likely ways you can die. It turns out we're all almost dead kids, half miracles probably. So later, when you're alone and should be asleep, you'll unlock your phone to search the definition of the word negligent and weep for not having someone to pull you out. All right. <laughs> I promise it gets lighter <laughs> at some point. <laughs> um, uh, shifting a little bit to different relationships. So kind of what I was talking about with thumbing through memories, I think I thumb through relationships um, with this idea of grief. Um, this is obviously the starting point. So now we're gonna move into the section about like fatherhood. Uh, this next poem is called Father Stretch My Hands. I'm watching myself yell at my father, shut up, shut up, shut up. It's my turn to talk. I'm furious and pacing, and I know I'm as red all over as he must be on the other end of this phone call. This weakening connection cracks like a windshield, a hairline, then all at once a black and yellow static slides into the astonished gap between his lips to fill his swelling throat with a plastic bag of angry wasps, and I'm still yelling in a different part of the house now my daughter's room probably, and I'm crying now almost certainly knowing this will be the last time I ever talk to him, this man who could cartwheel on the golden hour and laugh with his whole mouth and a cigarette clenched in his teeth at the same damn time. Whether or not you believe me, I need you to know my father was equal parts dazzle and charm. He was 80 swagger, and as soon as you saw him, you knew he'd done some shit. He was a pop song in the desert one summer. Now he is the cracks in my hands that are looking more and more like his by the day. My flesh is thinning, and isn't that punishment enough? So the next poem uh, I wrote before, like earlier in the year, um, and had to ex uh, like have to explain now. It's called Sonnet on Fatherhood with Sherman Alexie. Um, yeah. if, <laughs> if it makes you feel better, uh, my father was problematic too. Um, that's a terrible joke. Uh, <laughs> one, Sherman Alexie has taught me as much about my relationship with fatherhood than anyone else. Two, to be clear, I've never met Sherman Alexie. I mean that more in the symbolic way where a writer's name becomes a stand-in for their work. Three, my father's name comes up every time I fill out a legal form. At this point, it's more a stand-in for getting my taxes in order. Four, we don't have to like our parents. Actually, it's probably better to decide whether we do or don't early on. Five, as for love, well, that's an evolving thing, and the most I'm willing to stake is that you should try to love your parents. Six, love is what you do for a child, the grace you give them, even the ones you don't know, when they kick and scream and act out in all the ways that make young people these days not want to have children. Seven, if you don't want to, you should not have kids. Eight, 
Grace is a tricky concept. No one wants to be walked on all over nine. I am walked on all over by all three of my kids. Ten, my father didn't take any shit. Well, not from no one. Just from the people he didn't have to take shit from, like customer support operators and his children. Eleven, I hope Sherman Alexie likes this poem. Twelve, I hope my father likes this poem. Thirteen, I don't know if either read poems anymore. I certainly hope neither of them ever read this one. Actually, this poem is for everyone except Sherman Alexie and my father. Fourteen, I just read this poem out loud for the first time to my son. He says good. <laughs> Um, um, the next one's called Wallahi. Wallahi, ours and mine will be just fine. And Wallahi, someday I will find my own mosque. Yani, God brings us closer to them in different ways. Yani, taking care of others teaches us how to care for ourselves, reminds us that we're still alive. I made a cemetery of buried insects and fish the only pets my dad allowed. I tied crosses out of twigs and twines, struck them to the ground near where they lay, just as dramatically as seen on TV and the side of highways. My father must have come onto the scene thinking, shit, I've raised an infidel. <laughs> Which is probably why he made us pray all five times a day for a full week in the middle of one of our first summers in America. Um, I haven't read this poem out loud before, and I just, like, I want to try it. <laughs> uh, it's called Colossus with Cranes in the Sky. I had to watch the law ride away on a bicycle in order to speak openly about hunger with a quiet man in all the clothes he owned sitting next to me on a park bench near the fading federal courthouse where my lawyer asked me about the details of my case on the elevator ride down. It's amazing how many euphemisms for deportation you can fit into a single elevator ride. By the time the man next to me offers me his sandwich, my lawyer is long gone. Both of us breathing with our mouths hung open, mine wet and swallowing the benefit of the doubt. His, considering half an egg sandwich he picked up from the mission around the corner, he offers it in my direction. Sensing the restlessness of a drowning boy, the caked over creases in his hands folding endlessly into the oncoming night, reaching to deal devilishly with hunger, hauling me to the ocean floor. Of course, I didn't take it, <laughs> though I wanted to. Of course, I needed comfort. Of course, he needed comfort. Of course, we smiled more than either of us needed to. Of course, we made fun of the bicycle cop. Of course, I imagined most of it. Of course, I was child. Of course, I didn't ask him what he knew about eviction. What do you say when the space you take is a scene threat? when the architecture is an invitation to leave? Am I good enough, light-skinned boy enough to remain? If not, then what of your dreams, O oh mother of exiles that launched a thousand ships? Is he refuse enough? Am I wretched enough too for your promise? Where is this golden door we were promised? Where do we sleep tonight, after tonight? Naturally, the important thing is we remain polite. Our bodies stuck in affable poses, more for those watching us than for each other, even as we traded stories of hollowness and appetite in hushed tones. We even knew to cry with silent lips when the fair law came rolling back around. Any Wu-Tang fans in the house? For sure. Cream, cash rolls everything around me. 
dollar dollar bills, y'all. Get that money. Cream. Even when I don't want it to. Even with my baby in the hospital. Even when April is in bloom and the fruit is in season, especially when the fruit is in season. Even when my pockets were empty and the balance was low and I rolled around in a hoopty, even on the 2nd and the 16th and all the bills been paid, even when you're just trying to make it home for a funeral or a wedding, even during work breaks, even after hurried phone calls that pull you out of the water on any old Tuesday, even when you don't know how to grieve, even when everyone around you doesn't seem to know how to grieve any better than you, even when grief is all that is left and you can only fall to your knees and kiss the floor, even at the the moment before catastrophe, even mid-collapse, even when everyone loses their homes and there's nothing left to loot, even when we spray paint all this shit gold, even the morning after, even as last night's venom dries in the sun, even when all you want is just to be a body lying next to another body drenched in light, becoming light. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2018 curator of this program is Damon Arundel. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Ayesha Ubiatilaka, Daniel Gunther, and Joel Maddox. Narrator is Alyssa Keene, and executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by Amy Rubin and Don Clement, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Larry Lawrence. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. Thank you for listening. Thank you.